Tonight's talk. Tonight's talk is about understanding equanimity. Understanding equanimity. Some years ago, I came across a writing by the Reverend Howard Thurman, who is co-founder of the Church of the for the Fellowship of All Peoples in San Francisco, California. And it has continued to inspire me to this day and incline my heart to equanimity, just hearing what he says. So this is a collection of his meditations entitled, Deep is the Hunger. Deep is the Hunger. So that can be easily found online. He says there, How may we work in the world courageously and intelligently on behalf of a decent world, without despair and complete fatigue? What are the resources for personal rehabilitation and renewal that we may be able to look out on life with its vicissitudes vicissitudes of cruelty and transient joys, with quiet eyes and a tranquil spirit? So this reminds me of the teachings of the Buddha and the place where he talks about life with its vicissitudes of cruelty and transient joys. With quiet eyes and a tranquil spirit represents the equanimity part of it. Because the Buddha talked about how we live in this world of the eight winds of life. Joy and sorrow, praise and blame, gain and fame, praise and disrepute. And I'll repeat repeat that again through Uh, this duration of the Dharma talk. And seeing the world with quiet eyes is the subjective experience of equanimity when we do that, when we look out into the world and see all all these highs and lows, joys and sorrows, praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute. And so that ability to have this inner experience of a calm inner quiet, a kind of balance inside, uh, an ability to stay spacious yet really connected at the same time. So the mind and heart can hold whatever happens and not um, get so uh, reactive to it, a reaction that causes the mind not to be clear, causes the mind not to have an ability to respond with some kind of powerful wisdom and yet calm in the mind. So equanimity is an important subject to reflect upon, and especially in our world today. This culture we live in has the accessibility of so much speed of information, and we're continuously being bombarded with reactions of judgment and blame and fear, self-righteousness and terror and anger. And, you know, that's just coming from the very beginning. And then we get the spin doctors who are doing their own thing. And it's just layer upon layer upon layer of reactivity in this world that we live in. So we've become used to intensity and complexity and drama and some people say we're kind of intensity junkies. You know, if it's, not, if it's not really intense and it's kind of boring, we go to sleep. Or we're not quite totally awake. So to distance ourselves from, from all that, of course, our consumer society lures us with opportunities to forget, you know, to just feed upon this wanting this addiction, this craving, kind of normalizing craving almost in the world. So indeed, wasn't too long ago where I saw an ad that advertised in this way, increase your desire. It's, it's supposed to be good, yeah? Increase your desire. So there's also entertainment of all kinds to escape and to avoid the unpleasant feelings inside. And maybe you know, to be able to project them on the outside and um, somehow feel that that kind of reflects our, 
our inner world and there's kind of like a connection there. I was so, you know, it's not surprising that a lot of these um, things are happening in the world. When you, you go into a movie house, recently I was in a movie house with my daughter and granddaughter and on the side they have those um, those games that you play, you know. And one of the games was actually, I, I just was stood there in horror and watched a young person play this game of shooting people in a shopping center. I mean, that's the kind of world we live in. And so it's no wonder that people, that that gets normalized, you know, in the world. Like, okay, you can think that's you and just go out and do it. So sorry to bring that up uh, with your tender hearts. And that's the way it is, right? That's the way it is in the world. So entertainment of all kinds to escape and avoid, you know, this unpleasant inside, so we put it outside. Or we buy things. Addiction and craving is so rampant in the world. We live in a culture of escapism. Not too long ago there were quite a few articles written about this culture of escapism that we live in. Running away from the unpleasant running towards the pleasant. It's, that's why this is called samsara. You know, we're, we're running away from something, we're running towards something, and it's not really beneficial. And we don't have the clarity to see sometimes. We probably have a lot more clarity than 99% of the people in the world just because we practice what we practice. So um, we're fulfilling our desires all the time and it becomes normalized. So it's understandable that we feel agitated. There's a, there's a lot of anxiety medicine, a lot of things that we need to have because of depression and we're, we feel so vulnerable. It's kind of like almost the status quo now. So there's so much anxiousness in our lives and that's why the Buddha talked a lot even during his time there was conditions like this, uh, maybe uh, di- different specific conditions. But he talked in his time of the eight worldly conditions or the eight winds of change that we live in, constantly feeling the flux of, also known as the four pairs of vicissitudes. Again, praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute. We like to be praised. We don't like to be criticized. We like to experience gain more and more. And we don't like to feel loss. We want approval. We don't want to have disapproval or rejection, of course. We like to have pleasure and we don't like to have pain. These are all natural experiences as human beings. Nothing's wrong with this. It's just saying that this is the way it is. And what we do in our practice is really come to live with it and realize it so that maybe we can act and speak in a different way than what normally comes out of our our mouths and our, our behaviors out of just kind of acting things out that come up habitually. So external conditions are constantly affecting our thoughts, our emotions, and mental states. And... We're not so aware of those all the time. So what happens is we either become highly elated or afraid we're going to get um, slammed somehow or we feel depressed and we, we feel like it's going to be that way forever and we're never going to get back on some even keel or some place that we can feel like a fairly you know, balanced human being. So we're just kind of feeling always in this place of dukkha or a lot in this place of the unsatisfactoriness. And that's why the Buddha called that the first noble truth. There is a truth of that because we live in this human realm. So we all experience these eight worldly concerns and I'd like to read something uh, to you from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And when I read this... um, 
I felt like, oh, okay, I'm not alone. <laughs> if the Dalai Lama can feel this, express this, then I'm just, I'm pretty normal. So he was giving a talk once, and after the talk, he was talking about the eight worldly concerns, wanting to be praised and not wanting to be criticized, etc. So he said later, I think all of us are concerned in particular about maintaining a good reputation. For example, when I am up here on this throne teaching, from time to time, somewhere in the back of my mind, there appears a thought, how am I doing? How are people going to react to this? Are they going to praise me? Oh, maybe not. Maybe that didn't go so well. You know, the last sentence he said, will people criticize me? Whenever this happens, I need to catch myself and say, look, Now that I am here transmitting the Dharma teachings, I should not allow myself to be affected like this by the eight worldly concerns. However, we will find that hopes, fears, and discursive thoughts of every description will come into our minds. Even very pure monks might sometimes harbor a concern in the back of their mind about whether or not people give them a few words of praise. The eight worldly concerns can creep up on us quite stealthily and sneakily, and even when we do something virtuous, they will try to find a way to slip in. So I, I you know, there it doesn't happen so much now, but there were times after I, even during a talk, you know, I would, I would just find it so hard to go on because I'd be thinking of the last sentence that I didn't say in just the right way that I wanted to say it. And in the next sentence, I'd be cringing underneath, you know, have to wait for a while for that to uh, not bother me. And then going to sleep at night, there'd be what I'd call a lot of cringing moments. But actually, you know, when you look back and say, that wasn't so bad. But when you're, especially when you're talking about the Dharma, you want to be precise and... and, um, the, my prayer is to be useful, uh, is to be useful and clear. That's my my whole intention when I give a talk: to be useful and clear. So the the Buddha talked about the eight worldly conditions as a reason for the vulnerability we feel. Things are coming and going, and all this kind of flux all the time. So it's no wonder that we feel vulnerable agitated, not, not so feeling like we're, we feel relaxed in our own skin all the time. So, um, one of my yogi friends said that she felt uh, this vulnerability in a very particular way. She said, she was more assaulted, and she used that word, by her own thinking patterns than the outer conditions that happened. Like, you know how we can, something can happen on the outside, you have a little tangle with somebody, but your own thoughts about it are worse than what happened. Just the way we berate ourselves and we torment ourselves, and I sometimes feel that vulnerability is being pummeled by you know habitual thoughts and feelings and yes nowadays i can feel more of the not selfness of that pummeling than i did maybe 30 years ago but still you know it's there in a subtle way feeling assaulted or pummeled by our own thoughts more than what happens to us in the actual experience so you know a lot of times i have to tell myself what you're thinking isn't as bad as what actually happened. <laughs> you know? It's just a mantra that I have. So with the outer conditions and inner unseen, unconscious habit patterns constantly happening and bombarding us, it's no wonder that we feel kind of closed down sometimes and disconnected from our true, you know, natural-born selves on that relative level. We've gained so many habit patterns that are really not so useful anymore. 
And what happens at a time like this when we come to sit and we're quiet and we look at inside, what we see are those habit patterns. And what we begin to realize is that that isn't as, so useful anymore. And um, it's better to see it than not to see it because when we can see it, we can do something about it. But when we're unconscious of it, then it's really going to drive us crazy for the rest of our lives until it becomes into conscious awareness is what mindfulness really helps us with. So the important question is to ask ourselves and answer also for ourselves, how can we stay open and connected yet have an abiding sense of inner balance towards the outer worldly conditions and the inner conditions? Not just the outer ones, but just be balanced with what happens in here. And so if we don't do that, we're paralyzed by them or we act in ways towards them that add more suffering. You know what we call in the Dharma the second arrow. The first arrow already hurts. Basically the arrow of being born into this world, you know, of pain. And then we add more pain by the ways we think about it, by the ways we see it just our thoughts about it. So how can we stay aware and attentive yet compassionate towards ourselves? That's the question. And, and those, are the, those are the answers we're coming to, answering that question when we're here. So we're really reacting to the outer circumstances, the outer conditions, with, say, aversion if they're unpleasant, and attachment if they're pleasant, and if they're just way too much for us, us, we act with ignorance. We just want to ignore it, just pretend it's not there, just shove it under that steel plate. And so all of these things are kind of the, um, the uh, veils that are being lifted from us now, the veils of ignorance and confusion and when we see the veil or, um, of attachment and aversion, once they're seen, there's a chance that they can be let go of or be seen in their impermanent nature, their <laughs> selfless nature, which is a way of really being healing, healed from them. So what we're doing in a retreat such as this is we're learning the skills to explore and be honest with the inner terrain, which is constantly affected by the outer world. This world inside of us, constantly affected by the outer world. And so we need to be able to live with these changing fluctuations and vicissitudes. We can't just, you know, it would be really nice if we could just always go into some kind of samadhi and just leave it all out there. But once, you know, the conditions are not good anymore for being in that samadhi, it all comes back and we have to face it again, which is why vipassana is much more powerful because it gives us the tools to face those vicissitudes instead of just shutting them out. So, uh, but we need to have that concentration also in order to have the strength to bring to the moment-to-moment awareness so we can have a sense of inner calm in addition to the clarity to see things as they are. But we don't want to shut it completely out. So we're learning to remain calm and clear. And that's what uh, equanimity is. Calm, clear, spacious attention. I love the way that uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta said it, she was very, uh, a very aware and also a very humble person. So one of her prayers was like this, and, and of course, you know, she uses her own benefactor, Jesus, in, in this prayer. So we, we respect that. So these are the, this is a poem she wrote around the triggers for her that gave rise to wanting and fear. It just kind of, what I love about it shows her humanness. So she says, Deliver me, O Jesus, from the desire of being loved, from the desire of being extolled and honored, from the desire of being praised and preferred, 
from the desire of being approved of. Deliver me, O Jesus, from the fear of being humiliated, the fear of being despised, the fear of suffering rebukes, the fear of suffering slander, the fear of being forgotten and abandoned, the fear of being wronged and ridiculed. So she really just exposes all the ways that you know, we probably all feel at one time or another. I certainly do. So I really am struck by her honesty of knowing herself. And that's the thing what, that's so beautiful and pure about our being here together is we come to know ourselves. Uh, and we don't really, when we put the light of mindfulness on this mind, body, um, and heart, we really come to see everything in that clear, pure light. And nothing is left out. Bit by bit, we see it all. So we need this quality of equanimity to navigate this inner terrain clearly, to accept and allow that seeing, that experience, that knowing of what's really going on to actually happening. So... uh, we can see the outer terrain of our relationships, our family, our jobs, and our social and global responsibilities also clearly. We can face them clearly with, with a heart and mind that isn't pushing it away because it's um, not comfortable or isn't just grabbing onto it because it gives us that kind of feeling of comfort, which is nothing's wrong with that. It's just that we do a lot of it just out of habit and unnecessarily too because we do have the strength to face a lot and we don't actually use it or maybe we need to cultivate a stronger sense of equanimity in order to face things as they are. So equanimity implies balance but not uh, this kind of balance like you're balancing on a razor's edge And if you just tip a little bit one way, you're going to fall over. If you tip a little bit the other way, you're going to fall over that side. It's not that at all. It's actually quite the opposite. It's like, uh, I love the way in the mindfulness-based stress reduction that they they depict equanimity as a mountain. It has a very wide stance. So whatever happens, you know, that mountain is not going to tip over. So, and a lot of things can happen on that mountain, thunder and rain and snow and sleet and ice and um, all kinds of things like that. But it doesn't tip over. It doesn't, um, it stays spacious, it stays balanced, big, spacious. So the subjective experience when we're having equanimity is spacious, calm, balance. And uh, the spaciousness is a lot, there's a lot to that too. It's also because we can, it can hold a lot. So it's enough to contain all that life presents, everything and everything in between. So we can really not just survive as a human being, but we can really thrive. We can become stronger during the times of uncertainty and difficulty. And we know how to navigate it because we're not constantly shying away from those difficulties. This is a, a saying by Don, Don Juan to Carlos Castaneda. He said, The art of being a spiritual warrior is to balance the terror of being human with the wonder of being human. The wondrous part of being human is that we can face all the terror in the world and not shy away from it because we don't want to see it, but really open to it. And then we have the clarity and the balance and the strength to do what we can do as individuals and not to turn away at all. So in this space, there can be a lot of clarity because we're not seeing through the veils of avoiding or ignoring. We're not seeing through the veils of confusion or aversion or attachment. 
Instead, what's present is that spacious balance with clarity and real true connection with ourselves, our hearts, and connection with those who are suffering, the, the victims as well as the perpetrators. So we don't leave anybody out. It's not to make whatever um, perpetra- the perpetrators are doing that's harmful. It's not to make them right. But also to be able to... They need to be held in our hearts as well. You know, May they understand the harm and where their hearts really are. So it's just a very clear space to see things as they are. And then from there, real compassionate action can take place. Um, Or maybe it's better not to take action. Sometimes we don't realize that that is an option we have. So the opposite of equanimity is reactivity. And I say that last thing I said because oftentimes we tend to react thinking that we must do something right away. And oftentimes we really need to stop and check out like what what's the mind what's the mind's attitude now? Is this the time to act? Or maybe it's a time to just kind of step back for a while and not do anything. So we may often forget our wisest action is not to do anything sometimes. Um, and maybe it's just because of the timing. Or maybe we say, it won't, we know it won't do anything or make things worse. So equanimity gives us the choice to do that because we're not reacting right away in the same old habitual patterns. So one of the phrases that people use a lot, which is a common everyday equanimity phrase, not just in sitting when we're having difficulties inside, but when we're having difficulties with the outer world, with things that are going on uh, in our families, in our communities. When we're able to say, may I open to how it is right now? Because usually we close down. May I open to how it is right now? And may I respond with compassion you know, at the right time. So the, the ability to open to how it is right now just is the very first step. So we can just um, take that being open instead of closing down. Of course, sometimes we really need to protect ourselves and we need to get away really fast or we need to draw a boundary. And that's fine. Of course, I'm not leaving that out but something that keeps us from reacting right away is a phrase that is equanimity producing like may I open to how it is right now or I just say this is how it is right now you know just kind of instead of saying stop it's like okay I'm going to keep my eyes and my heart open so actually This is a very loving statement. It's not a statement of like resignation when we say this is how it is right now. It's not a statement of helplessness. It's a statement of clarity. It's a statement of facing the truth. We're facing the truth. And when we're facing the truth, it's really loving because we're not abandoning the truth. We're not abandoning what's out there and we're not abandoning our our integrity as well. It's said that equanimity is love that can encompass everything yet possess nothing. It means it doesn't have to hold on to what's there to be seen, to love. And that's why it says that equanimity makes loving kindness and all the other Brahmaviharas very powerful. Very powerful. The Buddha said that um, for one who develops deep abiding equanimity, it is a natural law to know and see things as they really are, to know the Dhamma, the Dharma. So the Dharma is really the the natural unfolding of reality. 
without our projections, without fear, without the veil of attachment that we sometimes see through, or the veil of uh, aversion that we sometimes see through. So I witnessed uh, a strong, a strong, deep, unconditional love and steady balance um, with a friend of mine who lived on Maui and who said the Dharma's teaching on equanimity was something that really helped her through very, very trying times. And so she gave me permission to tell her story. Quite a few years ago, one of her grown sons uh, in his early 20s had disappeared. And he just kind of didn't show up. They, they all lived on Maui and they looked all over for him, asked his friends, and um, no one either knew of what was going on or they knew but they didn't say. And so it was very, very frustrating and fear a fear-based thing for my friend. So not knowing where or what was going on, she held a very deep vigil and she was very patient and steady for quite a long time, more than a year, perhaps two years, even perhaps more than that, I didn't keep track. So it was a great loss and a great mystery to her. And so since nothing showed up, police couldn't find anything, investigators... She just thought, well, maybe he could have drowned somewhere, taken out by sea, or something happened to him. Didn't know if it was his involvement in anything drug-like or anything like that. Just didn't know, couldn't imagine. Very, very painful. So when she was telling me this, when she came to a retreat, when she was on Maui, one of the one-month retreats we had, and her equanimity phrase, which this was my phrase for my children, and I passed it along. All beings have their own journey. Though we may not know what it is, um, I care for their journey. You know, so it's not free from love, from love and care. It's not just saying, well, all beings have their own journey. You know, like we say in Hawaii, Okay, aloha oi, you know, it's up to you. But it's really a loving phrase. All beings have their own journey, and I care for your journey, but we can't control it because it's their journey. The traditional phrases, um, you know, I forgot the traditional phrase. What is it? All beings are the owners of their own karma. Their happiness or unhappiness depends upon their actions and not upon my wishes. So that, that was kind of that was kind of harsh for me, you know, like, ooh. So I changed it to all beings have their own journey. Because I could see with my own children, now they're grown, but they all have their completely different ways of being and their own ways of kind of finding their way in life. So eventually, my friend and her husband uh, sold their beautiful home on Maui, and um, you know a lot of memories that were difficult, hurtful. So they they thought they would go on. So they went to travel through Asia on their way to visit their daughter, who was living in Europe and who was going to give birth to a new grandchild for them. So uh, they were very happy to do that. But just before they left her son, who had disappeared, appeared, reappeared. So it was loss and then gain. It was sorrow and then joy for them. It was like right in in that period, short period of time, couple of years, um, there was really a clear seeing of gain and loss, joy and sorrow. And it, it was like a wonderful experience for them. So... After that experience of loss, then, of course, um, they went on to be with their daughter. Uh, they, they continued on their journey. And um, when they got to their daughter's place, she had given birth a short time, either before or after that, to a beautiful child. And there was joy again for the family in that way. And while there, not long after that, she got, they got news of her other son, not the one who had disappeared, 
and then reappeared. But a younger son that was very beloved to her. And uh, this son, she practiced in the Shambhala tradition, together with her, the Tibetan tradition of Shambhala, in that study. And just, he tragically died. Just like that. It was, this is all in a period, short period of years, really, a few years. So there was birth and there was death. And this was like, can you imagine the shock to her system? I mean, I've had shocks to my system, not quite like that, but like, wow. So um, she was really living through these um, vicissitudes of life. So we met in Oregon where, where her son was having a service because he lived in that area. So her friend, his friends were giving him a service. And I met uh, both the husband and her. The husband was the stepfather of these children. And we had dinner together. And she said, the Dharma saved my life. Here's a, a note that she wrote to me. I feel most genuine when I can hold in my heart the sorrow of losing her son alongside the love and joy of who he was. I mean, just right there, there's equanimity, you know, the sorrow and the love and joy of who he was. I'm staying connected. So she didn't connect herself, disconnect herself from her heart. She said, I'm staying connected. It seems to me this kind of loss can either destroy us or make us stronger. And I'm determined to learn and grow from it. The Dharma has been very helpful. It's short, but it's an incredible statement of strength of all she's gone through. I mean, sometimes, you know, I think of, I feel I've gone through a lot, but mine is just like tiddlywinks compared to this, you know. So all through this time, the ups and downs, she stayed connected, and and that really stays with me a lot because I want to stay connected with whatever loss, sorrow, uh, joy, ups and downs of life. I don't want to get too hooked onto the joys or too pushing away of the sorrows. Understanding them deeply, you know, though we don't know the unknowable conditions and causes that come together and give rise to whatever happens to us in our lives, um, we know that through our experience and our ability to face whatever is happening, we can face it. Maybe it doesn't make sense sometimes, but we can face it. So one of my phrases in relationship to my own close people to me is, the unfolding of a person's life is a result of countless unknowable, untraceable causes and conditions. So I wrote all of that down because I'm always, you know, aren't you trying to figure out what happened anyway, you know, with this or that. You know, I said this, they said that, and whatever else goes on after that. So countless, unknowable, untraceable causes and conditions. It's so hard, it just puts us in a tangle. So can we remember this every day and know that? It's it's easy when we have the strong support of new habit patterns like awareness or like metta or like compassion or equanimity. So sometimes the metaphor of the sky is used to describe what it feels like for the heart and mind to feel infinitely spacious so that it can contain all the dualities and diversities of the world. So that's why for just a handful of you have come and said, what do I do about this or that, this situation? Definitely when it's overwhelming, put it in a bigger space. Because oftentimes we put it in this little encapsulated, like a almost pressure cooker. You know, just kind of being with it, being with it, being with it. Well, put it in a bigger space because that will give you the energy and the spaciousness to be with what is. This, whatever it is, pain in the body or an overwhelming feeling of shame 
or an overwhelming feeling of loss, sometimes uh, I turn my attention towards hearing. A lot I do towards hearing. It can be really soothing. And so what's, what's the balance there? It's not just spaciousness, instead of putting it in this you know, little feeling, little container here, like a pressure cooker of pain in the heart. So put it in a big space, hearing, hearing. Or sometimes I just open my eyes and, you know, don't gaze at who's here. I'm just kind of soft gaze, letting everything be wide-angled. So taking a wide-angled view of that feeling that you have in your heart or in your body. So spaciousness is is one of them. Um, I love this saying by Achan Sumedho. The mind is like space. If you say Achan Sumedho and the mind is like space, his his, um, comment will come up. The mind is like space. There is, a room, there is room in it for everything or nothing. We always have a perspective once we know that space of the mind, its emptiness. Armies can come into the mind and leave, butterflies, rain clouds, or nothing at all. All things can come and go through without us being caught in reaction or resistance. It's a beautiful metaphor. <clears throat> And this is the one by the Buddha in the Majjhima Nikaya. He said, develop a mind that is vast like space where experiences both pleasant and unpleasant can appear and disappear without conflict, struggle, or harm. So spaciousness is really a big one in terms of feeling subjectively the, the inner space of equanimity and to see it all with quiet eyes. So experientially, equanimity can be defined as not being thrown off balance by events beyond our control. Not being thrown off balance by events beyond our control. Now, if you look at it really closely, and you know we see everything arising and passing away, do we have control over that? I mean, once it started to come, it, it, it does its thing, right? It just comes right on through. I mean, sometimes we can notice thinking and it just can stop and fall off a cliff right there. And some of the other things too. But a lot of things we don't have control over. Things that are already arising, they're the evolt, uh, result of past karma. That's called kama vipaka, uh, the result of karma. The Buddha still had the result of karma arising and passing away. But what he didn't have is reactivity to it. So he didn't plant any more uh, seeds in his karmic stream. And so that's why the Buddha had, you know, could get off the wheel pretty much. That's why. So, but we, we do have control over the karma we are creating. This is really important to know the difference. The karma we're creating is that reactivity to the karma that's coming up (laughs) inside of us, right? So if unpleasant arises and we react to it with aversion, that's karma creating. That's going into the karmic uh, field, the karmic stream. If something pleasant arises and we react with attachment, that's karma creating. So one thing, the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral is a resultant karma and this reactivity is the karma creation. So that's the place when you, some of you may have um, understood or studied this dependent origination and at the place where Vedana or pleasant, unpleasant, neutral is, right? And the next place is kind of like the possible reactivity to that. I can't remember where perception is on that, but in any case, the reactivity to that is what causes one to keep going on the wheel. If you can notice at pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, just be mindful there, and then that disappears. There's no more karma creation for that particular 
for that particular seed that came up. So that's where one becomes free on this dependent origination wheel. That may be a little... If you don't understand what I'm saying, never mind. That's going to... Manindra used to always say to me, if you don't understand it, just wait, because that Dharma talk is going to be given to you (laughs) at some point in your Dharma life, and then you'll see, oh, that's what Kamala meant, or whoever Mm -hmm. talked about it before. He used to always say, just put it on on the back burner or somewhere in the back of your mind, and when you hear that Dharma talk, where it puts it together, you'll understand. This is the one I'm talking about, to bend into origination. But I think you can understand, right? that if pleasant, unpleasant, neutral arises, that is a result of previous karma. And when we react to that result, we're making more karma. That's a seed that goes into the karmic stream, and it's bound to come up again. So the more that we can notice these subtle experiences without reacting to them, these inner experiences, we're really weakening, um, we're purifying we're, we're beginning to start the uprooting of um, those defilements in our mind that cause rebirth over and over and over again. And you might see rebirth as you know just a physical rebirth or rebirth of consciousness, moment to moment to moment, either way. So we don't have control, but we have a lot of influence over how we respond to the events of the inner world, of the events of the outer world. And we can refrain from rushing into reaction out of compulsion or to get even or to be right um, or reaction from an uninvestigated judgment about something or someone. So we can refrain from all that and, and not kind of you know, react so quickly. A long time ago, one of my yogi friends, uh, was she was in the three-month course and was telling me that getting there, there was a, a lot of difficulty between her partner and herself. And so she went through a few periods of reporting to me about how she was right about something. And then finally, you know, it, it probably took a couple of weeks or maybe more to realize she came in and she said, you know, Kamala... I'd rather be free than right. You know, she she was trying to assert her claim all the time that she was, and it was causing so much suffering. And I kept saying, well, if you keep doing that, you know, you're going to keep suffering. And so then she finally said, I'd rather be free than right. So that's how that whole saying started going around in the Dharma. It came from that person. (laughs) It came from her experience. So, yeah, when we're mindful, conscious, mindful, we're not reacting, we're free in that moment. Just being able to see how things are and then have the appropriate response to it. The appropriate response. So, isn't it true that you can do something in an instant that will give you a heartache heartache for a lifetime? Because we're we're just not thinking. We just kind of, boom, we react. So as I engage in my own um, life, I'm seeing, uh, trying to see the world with quiet eyes more. And I, I don't always, but fortunately, you know, the Dharma comes to save us. Um, and we can put that, I started to call it Dharma duct tape on our mouths. <laughs> before we say something that comes out, you know, just get that thing really tightly there. It takes a lot of strength and steadiness uh, because otherwise that far, it's called the far enemy of equanimity is reactivity. So the far enemy, that means you can see it from afar, it's really clear, it's reactivity. It comes in two parts. There's aversion to the unpleasant, I've kept talking about that, or attachment to the pleasant. So aversion and attachment are the far enemies under the heading of reactivity. And so this is really important to see when that's happening within us to be able to just like, just settle back and be in the awareness of what's going on. And 
Or you can call forth equanimity. You can say, okay, may I open to how this is right now? We can, maybe it won't happen in, in a big way, but at least you're intending, you're inclining the mind towards it. You're helping it to come forward by really just bringing it up in your minds. So one of my colleagues calls it the ability to stand in the center and see all sides. Because if you're in the center, the middle path, you can see what's happening more clearly. And this is um, equanimity. Resting the mind before it falls into extremes. So it's not falling into aversion or attachment. So from this spacious place, there's a deeper trust in ourselves. And when we don't have reactivity, then we can really we can feel calm inside. And we can do the right thing. As His Holiness says, you can deal with the situation with calmness. And then our words and deeds have powerful action in the world, have power in the world. I remember a time when um, I was hearing His Holiness speak, and um, he was speaking about the tragedies that were happening in his beloved country of Tibet. And so what happened was somebody came up and said, I'll do everything I can. It was just like really quite fired up, you know, but it wasn't fired up with the ability to to act right away or the wanting to act right away, but just fired up with kind of like ready to do anything, you know, even harm. And um, His Holiness said, just wait till you develop more equanimity. And then... This would be a way to really be um, a support to that cause. So, when we've already reacted, remember um, when we've reacted to the outer conditions, uh, we have a second chance, you know, because maybe we've already reacted, but we can do something about it. And maybe something else may come up from our inner conditions that are going to react to what we did, where we feel more muddled, where we feel, oh, I didn't say the right thing, you know, it didn't sound like I was really right, (laughs) or we didn't um, act in the right way. So I was in this situation with a a person, and uh, there was an argument going on between us, it was a neighbor, and... um, she wanted. She didn't want the, the us to clear a fence line. It was a really simple matter, but she was quite upset about it. And so, as she was speaking, and very upset and hot-headed, and I was trying to, you know, kind of meet that energy and uh, feeling annoyed and frustrated, and sometimes a little grr would come up, you know, of anger. And so, what happened was, I said to her. I think I'm not going to say anything now because I feel like I'm going to not say the right thing. I'm, I'm quite um, fired up right now and I think that I'm not in the right balance to do this. And so I noticed that she was that way, you know, and I wanted to make room for her. So I said, well, maybe I better not say anything now because I feel like this is not the right time. And she said to me... Uh, yeah, you're right. This is not the right time for you. You're pretty annoying. And it was like, you know, another thing that I could get upset about. <laughs> right? I just felt shamed at that moment. But anyway, um, it was fine. You know, we just uh, pretty much ended friends. And things turned out in the long run. So I remember His Holiness calling this... Um, this uh, equanimity, an inner disarmament, an inner disarmament, like we're not kind of firing all of our missiles out there. We're just kind of, okay, just disarm that, and you can just settle back and let things happen, and then know the right time for you to act or not to act. So the far enemy is reactivity, but the near enemy is indifference or apathy, passivity. Sometimes I've heard um, someone in the Tibetan tradition called it stupid equanimity, 
because I don't know why they use stupid, but it's really not true. It's kind of a fake equanimity. Um, It's not a true equanimity. It's like when you just don't care. You're not even connected. You know, you, you don't have any empathy or caring at all. There's this total indifference. There's this, some people call it an emotional emptiness or a distancing or actually avoiding a coldness. And that's when we're in denial of what's happening. We don't want to face it. And uh, that's why staying connected is so important. So the practice is to be really honest with yourself and to really feel that inner feeling and to know, do, do I care or not? You know. And so in the moment, just to notice that feeling inside and maybe there's a lack of connection with what that person's really going through or yourself. So sometimes it takes some reflection and, and, and you probably don't do anything, you don't respond at all anyway. But it's, it's really important to take some reflection about that, that kind of cold indifference. So it doesn't mean that, um, equanimity doesn't mean that we're a doormat to life. I really want to make that clear. It doesn't mean that we don't do anything at all. We do something about what needs to be done. And some, we might have to be discerning about how we do it, when we do it, and equanimity allows us to have that kind of clarity to do that. So, um, I was in a shopping center once and I heard somebody, I saw someone and heard someone pummeling another, a young boy pummeling another person, just beaming up on him. And so, uh, the other, one person was kind of down and out and the other person seemed like you know, on on one kind of drug and the other one was probably on another kind of drug and it was all out. But anyway, one guy was really getting beat up on. I don't know whether the, what I said is true or not, but it just seemed like one guy was just out of nowhere just beating that other guy up. And the other guy was just nowhere to be found consciously. He was just kind of out of it. And so just receiving that. Well, did I just stand there and say... Well, this is how it is right now. (laughs) I shouted at the top of my lungs. There was a nun with me, actually, even. And we were looking for some gifts for some Dharma friends. And I shouted at the top of my lungs, Stop it! Call the police! Somebody help! You know, but I had the wherewithal to not get too near because I might get pummeled, too. But I really shouted at the top of my lungs. I had one time taken that course called, um, what is that course called when you, it's uh, when you are, you, you do a self-defense kind of thing, but it's called, um, um, anyway, never mind. But they tell you in the course if you're, if you're being, if you're going to be assaulted or something happens, something's happening to you or somebody's following you or you feel like something's wrong, just shout at the top of your lungs. So I brought my 13-year-old daughter to that course and we both had to do that. You know, we both had to shout and then we, <laughs> just a little more, we, were, we both had to fight off this great big guy who was all, you know, covered in all kinds of uh, paraphernalia and we really just had to beat and to kick and to get away and it really brought up that survival um, experience in, in me. So I know that I know I could do that. Anyway, I, I, so watch out, you guys. Don't mess with the teacher. So the shouting was really, you know, that really came in handy then. So you do what you have to do. So if people say to you, equanimity is not doing anything, what if I just turn out to be a blah? Well, no, you just get clear. And you know what to do. If you needed to shout, you need to shout. Why remember Manindra, there's a story about Manindra telling Sharon Salzberg one time, who was saying that um, a rickshaw driver was stealing her purse or something like that. 
And Manindra said, you should have taken your umbrella and hit him with all the loving kindness in your heart. (laughs) So you don't just stand there, you know. You do something about it. So if it's a boundary you need to make with somebody, you say no. You know, you, you, you don't just be, be namsy-pamsy about it. You're really clear. So that's, that's equanimity. If the Buddha would say, uh, for, would say that for one who develops a deep abiding equanimity, it is a natural law to know and see things as they really are, to know the Dhamma. So I just wanted to repeat that. So it's called the doorway to the unconditioned because during that time of equanimity in our vipassana practice, it really sees clearly the arising and passing away of everything in very, very pixelated view. And it's, there's a deep knowing that can't hold on to anything. So there's the ability to allow things to take their course happens. You know, in, I'm shifting now to what happens in deep practice. So equanimity is a very important practice to, to practice in our daily lives because it gives us the practice to be with those kinds of things that we see in our moment-to-moment practice, in very deep practice, where it can get really scary when you just see things arising and passing away in such quickness, in such swiftness. And it can be um, a, a scary feeling to understand that Where's the me here? Where's the mind here? And it just all disappears. So I want to tell a story to end about um, a vision that I hold that reminds me of a strong connection with uh, the experience of equanimity when I went to visit Manindra for what I thought was going to be the last time, but it was the second to the last time. And I went to uh, Varanasi with him, and it was my last day in India. We had traveled around to certain places, and we had been in Sarnath for a while, and then to Varanasi. And we were going out on a boat before dawn, and during that time before dawn, the burning ghats, uh, where they burn the, the, um, those who have died, they burn the bodies during that time. And when you go down the boat, sometimes you're able to see them. And Manindra very much wanted me to see this because this is what only a Dharma teacher would want for you is to be able to experience death that closely, right? So, But I had because I have worked in a cemetery for uh, in the office for 20 years. So it was a very important thing that he wanted me to take, down, take me down this river, the Ganges River. So it was a clear, warm morning, and we hired a boat, and we were going down the river. And on the very far side of the river, the sun was coming up, and it was just a gorgeous sun. It was a yellow, orange, you know, incredible ball of light coming up. So it was marking the birth of a new day. So here was birth arising on one side. And on the other side, as we were going down the river, there were the burning ghats. And I could see, you know, certain bodies. I couldn't see them up close, but burning. They're just kind of, some of them in very full view. And then uh, on, the, on one side of me is Manindra, you know, my teacher, my first teacher. So just, he was just like family member to me, uh, teacher, family member. So he was holding my hand on one side. And so I just felt so much joy to, to have my teacher nearby, you know, and it was um, a lot of gratitude and joy for him, for myself, for our friends with us. And on the other side, there's sorrow, you know, the, the people losing the loss of their loved ones, the people all around. So we have birth and death, joy and sorrow on one side. And there was beauty, you know, uh, India is so beautiful in its kind of rawness of just seeing all of life so up close and beautiful. I, I loved being in India the various times that I was. Um, but on the other side, there was the lot, a lot of the um, up close and personal 
uh, understanding of dukkha, the, the suffering that people go through there. It just really opens your heart. So there's this heart-opening beauty, and there's this suffering also. So just the ability to hold your heart open to all of it is, is really wonderful. And you're not closing down to the beauty, because maybe, you know, sometimes we feel like it's, it's too good to be true. That's what my friend says. Just say it's good enough to be true. <laughs> and, and then also, you know, the suffering of life which is also true. So, the death and the birth and the, the happiness and the sorrow and the, the beauty and the rawness of life, you know, the dukkha that goes on, can we keep our, our hearts open to all of that? That's what equanimity helps us to do. So I'd like to end with this... Um, This is from the book, The Way It Is, actually, from that particular book, The Way It Is. It's a good poem for equanimity by William Stafford, and it's called The Gift. Time wants to show you a different country. It's the one that your life conceals, the one waiting outside when curtains are drawn, the one grandmother hinted at in her crochet design, the one almost found over the edge of the music after the sermon. It's the way life is, and you have it. It's a balance, the taking and passing along, the composting of where you've been and how people and weather treated you. It's a country where you already are. Time offers this gift in its millions of ways, turning the world, moving the air, calling every morning. Here, take it. It's yours. So let's sit for a moment. Let the words dissolve. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.